You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, welcome back to the program, Max. We missed you. I missed you guys, too. Greetings, Max. Who did you come back with? I came back with Claire Malone, you guys. Claire Malone uh, covers the media for The New Yorker. Before that, she freelanced. Before that, she was at 538. You might remember her voice from the 538 politics podcast, of which she was a mainstay. Claire is... Super interesting to talk to you, um, talking to her about covering the media as a member of the media was, um, you know, meta and fun for me. And she just wrote a story, which Aaron, I know uh, you were quite interested in, about Hassan Minhaj, who uh, you guys know, he's a comedian, uh, hosted a show, was in the running for The Daily Show. And Claire wrote this piece a couple of weeks ago about uh, stories that he has told in his stand-up specials and uh, their veracity and the questions that their lack of veracity pose. I would say that this story has provoked more uh, like conversation about a story. I'm, I'm trying to put my finger on exactly. It's like uh, using this as a starting point is really interesting to talk about a lot of different things that have been talked about on this program uh, going back a decade, uh, back to the uh, Mike Daisy uh, Apple fiasco. Remember, <laughs> how long ago was that? Was that 15, 20 years? That's <laughs> that nineteen eighty. <laughs> when did it happen? I don't know, man. <laughs> maybe, maybe ten, eight, eight years, maybe. Eight, only eight Ooh, years since know. that. No, it's got to be more than that. It was like right when the iPhone came out, wasn't it? No, no. <laughs> I li- I listened to that story on my iPod. Can we do a Can we do a um, Patreon where it's like bonus episodes where I'm just like getting things wrong, trying to remember? Us the- talking about how old we are is every intro. Got it. Got it. But okay, I agree. The story touches on many themes. I think one of the things that was interesting talking to her was you know she's writing about the media, she's writing about business models, but also about how conversation happens, how you capture attention, how you find an audience, and then wrote this story that found a huge audience on both sides of the political spectrum and talking to her about that reception and also what about her approach and the writing and the way that she wrote that piece allowed for that conversation to happen. It was all, uh, it was all super fascinating. 
I am very much looking forward to this. I think one of the highest degrees of difficulty is writing about stand-up comedy. It's very easy to be like, and this is why this joke, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it, it's uh, I'm impressed by anyone who can do it um, and, and really capture what stand-up is. So I look forward to this. She's writing not just about um, comedy, but also about like David Zasloff just wrote a huge profile of him and Mark Thompson, the person who took over at CNN. So she's she's uh, she's got range, Aaron. She's got range. Hey, I like range. The uh, the jokes on this podcast, mostly provided by Aaron, are brought to you in partnership with uh, Vox, and we thank them. Uh, now here's uh, Max and Claire Malone. Hi, Claire. Hi, Max. Welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Of course. Happy to be here. We're in person. Yeah. It's great. It's a good vibe. It's a good vibe. It's a great vibe. We've been talking for far too long. I, w- I hope we haven't like uh, burned ourselves out. No, it's good. Yeah. I made a rookie move and just didn't turn the mics on at the beginning. That's right. You got to like record in, record out of the room. I know. I know. Blew it. <laughs> you talked so much shit. I didn't catch any of it. I know. That's right. We've, we've said for a long time that like maybe a better version of the long form podcast would be what people say after we stop recording yeah like if we if we just put that out it it might be better or if you just like everyone gets a shot before they come in (laughs) totally well i have i have lots to talk to you about but i i I think we should go back i think we should start at the beginning (laughs) okay how did you uh how did you get into this how is this what you're doing with your life well i did newspaper in college and then graduated during the crash like the the may after the financial crash is when i graduated And I did my first two years, like, not doing journalism. I lived abroad. I worked for a university in Doha, Qatar. And I was always kind of like, um, okay, like, when I get back, I'm going to, like, start, I'm going to, like, get back into journalism. But I kind of, I came back and I applied to, like, politics speech writing jobs Uh and journalism jobs. So, like, you know, my, in my bizarro world self is, like, some kind of weird speech writer, which is kind of weird. (laughs) Do you you ever think about that? Not often, but there is like, yeah, there is like a sliding doors moment of, you know, for, I feel like for college, the sliding doors moment is like, I went to Notre Dame uh-huh. instead of where I ended up going, which is Georgetown. And at Notre Dame, like my bizarre world future is like, I'm a lawyer in Chicago. Uh huh. So that's the first one. And then, but I think like, yeah, the post first job, you know, it's 2011. Yeah. There is like, oh my gosh, I kind of sh- like, this feels so like, uh, against everything I now feel like I stand for, but it's like, maybe I'm like a campaign operative, <laughs> which would be weird. I actually think I'd be very bad at it, but um, yeah. I, Why do you think you'd be bad at it? Well, I don't think I'm actually like a true believer. You know, I think you have to be a true, like, I think I'm actually innately very skeptical. It's and so I funny you it, say that because I talked to um, some mutual friends of ours before we talked. Oh my God. And literally everyone was like, Claire's superpowers, her skepticism. Every, every <laughs> single one of them. Really? Yeah. Someone described you as um, a classic eye roll journalist. Who'd you talk to? I can't tell you this. I can't, I, I can't reveal my sources. Oh, wow. But uh, but your, your skepticism, <laughs> it precedes you. Oh, my God. But, I'm like, I'm genuinely like, well, actually, like, I'm glad to hear that. I would like, I think in my personal life, I'm quite earnest, actually. Uh-huh. But definitely, I'm professionally skeptical. Oh, how do you square that gap? Well, I think you can have empathy for the people you're skeptical of, right? Like, you can be professionally skeptical and skeptical of what people are saying, but also then there's, like, this, you know, particularly with politics, which I did for a long time. It's like, 
I'm sort of like innately skeptical of all politicians. Uh huh. But then you can be empathetic to like, what's the weird thing that's driving you towards power? Mm-hmm. Like there's a, or like I'm often empathetic towards political spouses and families. Like, yeah. God, that must be, you know, like, so there's, I think there's ways to balance it, but also it's like nice to have a relief at the end of the day. Like you, you can't be constantly skeptical, you know? Yeah. You just kind of fall in on yourself at some point. Exactly. Yeah. I'm surprised to hear you describe political operatives as like earnest or optimistic. (laughs) No, no, no. True believers. True believers. There's two kinds of political operatives. True believers in like some sort of idea about society, like moral true believers. And then there are people who are true believers in like their team. Mm -hmm. And those are the cynical people, but they still have like a, I'm on this side. You know, like I think that this side is right always over this other side. Like there is a certain... You kind of have to have that, like, instinct inside you. Don't you think lots of journalists have that? Yeah. Do you feel like you're on the journalism team? I feel like I'm on the journalism team, yeah. Yeah, you're you're a true journalism believer. Yeah. It's funny, like, I profiled Ben Smith, and he, I, like, asked him, this is, like, I don't know, three or four years ago, when he was still at the Times as a media columnist. Yeah, the, um, that profile is great. You did the same thing. You started that profile with, like, a bunch of quotes from... <laughs> <laughs> His friends talking shit. Uh, ben is a messy bitch was, I think, the best one. I, yeah, that's very high up there. But in that in that interview, I asked him, like, well, because I, I was, you know, whatever. I was asking a question. I knew he'd probably, like, blow me off. But I was like, so what's, like, what, how would you describe your politics? And he said, my politics are journalism, which I actually think is a pretty good answer. And I, like, yeah. knew what he meant. Um, so I do definitely think of myself as a journalist first. Do you think that covering politics and now covering media has made you more of like a true journalism believer or less like I, I think the, the thing I'm yeah. driving at is like all right so you had this sliding doors moment where you could have become a campaign operative but instead you became a journalist but you you've been operating in the world where those places touch for a long time mm-hmm. yeah and I think there is a assumption or at least I have one that the longer you operate in that space the more cynical you become yeah has that been true for you Mm. Well, I think it's probably made me, to go to my earnest side, more sad. Like the last piece I wrote at 538, when you told me you were looking at my archive, I was like, what's the last piece I wrote at 538? (laughs) And the last piece I wrote at 538 was actually sort of like, I'm glad it was my last piece because it was about like um, what Trump has done to America. Mm -hmm. And it was more about like the really like ingrained antipathy and distrust that people have for each other and like the kind of death of persuasion and I know that makes me sound like a or maybe some people interpret that as like a person who wants to like capitulate to like you know people who tried to overthrow the government but it's more like you know when you see a guy who's like got a pot belly and like is wearing a trucker hat you're like oh that guy's not like he's not convincible like there's a certain like more which we've always done but it was kind of this like uh Trump has made everyone like sadder, more disaffected by believing in things, believing in government, believing things could work. And I think, so I think like covering politics, especially over the Trump years, in some ways it like, it really, it did numb me to like Trump's rhetoric. Like I'll never forget, like when I was at 538, we used to like live blog all the speeches. So I think he gave his first State of the Union And I was like, well, let's go to a bar and I'll live vlog and we'll have like a beer. I went with like a few friends. So we like do the, you know, the speech ends. I'm like, great, let's go get pizza. And everyone's like, you know what? Like, I'm actually kind of bummed out. Like, I 
I just want to go home. Like people were so bummed out by the speech. And I was like, it was just like a regular, it was like a Trump speech, you know, like, let's go. <laughs> and that's, that was kind of like, I of course knew the rhetoric, but it was just like this kind of realization that like, I was swimming in those waters much more than even my yeah. like very newsy friends were. But to go back to, to the cynical question, I think, you know, whatever our, you know, our mutual acquaintances have said about the cynicism, I actually think my cynicism for politics comes from having gone to Georgetown and having known many people who aspired to politics as a career. I mean, John Ossoff and I were in classes together mm-hmm. uh, and who just like saw themselves at the start of this great journey. And I was like, all right. Uh, <laughs> like, so I think, and these are people I like love and were friends and was friends with, but it was often a certain kind of guy. Uh-huh. And I was just like, okay. And I kind of always see those people like, you know, like you, you kind of, the roots of ambition are interesting to me, having gone to a place like Georgetown, where lots of people see themselves at the start of a very important journey. Do you not think of yourself as an ambitious person? Of course. No, of course. I just don't think I, I don't think I should be like president of the United States. <laughs> like there's a certain like sort of insanity of thinking that you should represent. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. if not I understand. the hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, that's, that's a different level of, of ego. But I mean like most people we know in New York are ambitious. So I, I almost like don't even think of it, of it, of being ambitious. Yeah. It's just kind of like a, a prerequisite. It's sort of, yeah, it's sort of, obviously it speaks to the milieu. Like, mm-hmm. it's filled with ambitious people. It's like, it's why everyone at the New York Times is so happy. <laughs> <sighs> Leak to me, New York Times <laughs> staff. Um, that's how this works, usually. It's just, you just, um, you just ask for leaks uh, on podcasts and they just come to you. That's, that's right. That's how the media beat works. I actually, re- recently, speaking of Georgetown... Someone recently asked me to do like our alumni newsletter is like, here's what Ahoya is doing. And I was like, great. And at the bottom, I was like, if you're, if you're in media, business, finance, or politics, here's my email and number. You should like, send me. I don't know. I feel like it's just kind of put, put it out wherever. Yeah, put the network to use. <laughs> no one leaked to me, shockingly. The uh, cynicism and optimism, the earnestness, how close or different does it feel moving from politics to media it feels similar like media reporting and politics reporting feels similar in certain ways in part because a lot of the people you're dealing with like very innately understand how reporters work how media works so there is a certain cynicism of you know like on the media beat like no one wants to talk on the record at first Mm -hmm. if at all so there's a certain like you know there is a there it's you're dealing with cynical people but I think as with politics, like, media, you know, politics at the end of the day, it's also, it's about real people's lives. Like, politics is the game that we play in order to, like, you know, exert order on a country of 300 million people that, like, you know, is arguably too vast and big to govern in, in some ways. And, you know. and media, the earnestness behind it is it's people's jobs and livelihoods and the media industry is dying right now. And so there's a lot of, like, cynicism about the business and business models but behind that cynicism lies like well what's gonna work and 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 there's also with media the the sort of journalism aspect of it which is like and who's gonna trust us Mm -hmm. so like media right now actually does it's obviously like this very cynical power brokery beat but then the two things that are like genuine like people's lives are being affected are 
who trusts us, the readership, and not a lot of people trust us across the country, and also like who's losing their jobs. A lot of people. I think last year was like a record number of media layoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty. Like I do think that there's a certain amount of earnestness built in because it's it's people's jobs and livelihoods. And like, you know, to be a little like highfalutin for a second, like it is democracy, like it matters what happens to the media in a big way. And that's how it always inter- intersects with politics. Do you feel like in a way, like every story can be a media story? Totally. Yeah. How so? What does that, what does that mean to you? <sighs> I mean, everything in your phone is media. The, the company that like you know, makes your phone or makes the news app is like thinking about like we're an information processing society. And so there's always like a media business angle. What conglomerate owns this thing that is like holding your attention? You know, you know, are the Chinese like monitoring you while you watch TikToks? Like there's always, and like, how does that intersect with like freedom of speech or like, you know, should we be allowed to have that? I mean, there's definitely a way to like bullshit your way into a media angle anywhere but like particularly i think you know we're what we're 13 months from the election like most politics stories now are media stories like trump we're talking on a day when trump is in lower manhattan and he's in the courtroom for most of the day but he takes breaks and stands in front of microphones and like you know, shit talks people. Mm-hmm. That's media. That's a media story. It's basically like how his camp, that's like the beginning of his campaign communication, right? Like, and, and the sort of like scene and communication that he's, he has is a media story because like the press enables it. And I'm not saying they shouldn't, I, you know, it's a legitimate story, but it's kind of about that like symbiotic relationship between Trump and the press. So there's your media story. The last time you were covering that story more from the politics side, it sounds like you are about to be covering that story more from the media side for the next 13 months. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? Are you like, do you have the energy to do this again? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yes. I guess it's like kind of impossible for you to say no in this, <laughs> yeah. in this particular venue. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's, here's what I'll say. I think many people in journalism are like many people who are readers or just like regular Americans, which is like everyone's sick of the news on some level, particularly the political news. Like we all know that like website readership is way down, ads, traffic, like social traffic referral is down. Like people just aren't as into the news. And some of that is structural, like social media companies aren't driving people to news sites in the way they once did. But I think everyone kind of has, and I think, I include journalists, like a little fatigue. Like I got, I was laid off right after the 2020 election and after kind of like, you know, January 6th and all the stuff that happened, like I did take a period of like, I'm not really going to like be as ensconced in politics as I was. Like I did a, I did a podcast about like pop culture. Mm -hmm. I like wrote about other things and that was really nice and felt kind of like healthy. Yeah. <laughs> and it it felt like good not to have like, you know, Trump was in the news always, always, always. And it was nice to have a break. And I think now a lot of us are feeling a sense of fatigue tapping back in because what's so interesting about the 2024 election is in so many ways, it's going to be the exact same thing as 2020. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to be the same candidates. Not a lot of people like the candidates. The candidates are both old. There's like the same storylines. We're still litigating January 6th, the 2020 election. 
you know, there, there, like, there are new factors, obviously, the court cases, the war in Ukraine. But by and large, the things that were exciting about 2016 was like, yeah, wow, this is a crazy story. <laughs> it was, it was fun to cover. Yeah. I mean, like disturbing in a lot of ways, but like fun and interesting to cover something really new. Energizing. Energizing. And now it's like, we know all this, we know all the rhetoric. We know all the lines, like everything's very calcified. And so from just a like, what's the story? It's like, everyone's been profiled. Everyone, you know, like there's a certain kind of like, man, how do, like, how do we do it this time over? And how should you balance like, you know, the access journalism that is required in politics with like the adversarial journalism that Trump necessitates? Like there's a kind of, uh, it's a slog that I think a lot of people are, probably myself included, like not excited uh-huh. to cover, but obviously like need to cover. Will cover. Yeah. Like we obviously have to cover it. Like there is a certain like duty boundness and also yeah. like it's, it is, the, it is both the biggest story, but also it's not the story, like it's not the story that people want to read about. Like. So how do you find a story in that, that people want to read about? <laughs> You're talking to someone who's looking for their next story. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, um, I mean, listen, people do, people do want to read about Trump. Like he is, he is a magnetic figure. He is a person who like is not only powerful and important, but like gets page views if we're being cynical. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we're going to see a lot more just Trump stories, Trump, Trump, Trump. Like I feel like my tuning back into to like politics and like what's new is I've been spending a lot more time trying to read and listen to um, lawyers talking about the Trump trials because I, I think like, I think the biggest the biggest stories are these court cases against Trump. Mm-hmm. And there are six of them, two civil, four criminal. They get smushed together. There's drama with his lawyers. There's drama with the judges. And like in some ways, you know, is there like helpful explanatory journalism just to be done for people of like, hey, here's what's here's what's going on. Let's try to like separate out these threads. But I will be honest, like that I I I am finding myself right now a little bit like, what's new? Mm-hmm. What's interesting? What's the angle? Or like what? Or if nothing's new, how do you describe that dynamic or delve into it in a way? Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners 
by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. How many times in your career do you feel like you've been in this position? Like how often have you been in this sort of like platonic ideal of like genuinely curious and with the space to uh, indulge your curiosities? And how often have you been in a situation like this one where it's like, I got to find some shit to write about? Um, I've always sort of been, been given space. I think maybe my editors haven't been happy about it, but like, Space to think, but then also like an in, an internal pressure to be like, oh, I should be on the website or, you know, like, uh, I think the New Yorker has the reputation for like, you can spend a year on a story and like, well, it's like, I can't, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not tenured in that way. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I also think like the New Yorker, like so many places, like, you know, we want more people on the website. We want, we want to be publishing stuff that feels like in the mix. So I think there is certainly like a desire to kind of like, okay, think, and it should be thoughtful and you should take your time doing it. But like, let's come up with an idea so that you can then like report it and do right. it. And so it's, it's funny. It's yeah, like, it was interesting when you were talking about the like explanatory journalism idea. I, I was just thinking like, huh, is that like a, is that the New Yorker's lane? I think it could be. Yeah. I don't know. How do you think the New Yorker should cover the court cases? I don't, I don't believe that's my job to figure out. <laughs> Yeah. I think it's really hard. No, yeah, it's it's it's, and I don't think we have a answer right now, and it's it's like, um, are people interested in that? I think they'll be more interested now that Trump is standing outside, grandstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think that I think that's like fully square right now. If you think about it, is like Sam Bankman Fried, Trump, and Menendez are all there, like you know, mosh pitting together. Right, meeting, and like, meeting in the cafeteria for coffee. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's funny, though, when you say that, because like, I do think that I feel like the SBF trial has gotten such an incredible amount of attention. Totally. Compared to a former president who is running again, uh, being in trial on the street. Like, it, it, it does feel to me like um, the FTX stuff is just, like, so new and exciting and totally wild. And totally. he's a brand new character that everyone's like, it's like a uh, that one. I think that's totally it. And it's also like, we love like in the past, what, five or six years, we love stories about scammers. Yeah. And so like the fact that he was so publicly built up and now is so publicly toppled and he kind of fits into that mold of like, oh, was he just bluffing all along? Totally. That people like that. People want that. And then the Menendez thing is just funny. I mean, it's not, it's not funny. It's not funny to like, uh, <laughs> but the gold bar, gold bars are it's pretty very good. Jersey. Like yeah. there is a certain, so like that, but yeah, the FTX thing, I totally agree. And then it kind of has these like the Michael Lewis of it all and how everything like, you know, what is, you know, it, that's an interesting journalism story too. Or like, you know, how close should, should a journalist be to their subject? And that whole story is so like, there's so many, it also, you know, intertwines with politics, with the political donations. He just was everywhere. And it is kind of like, I think it goes to people's, to go back to cynicism, like People are like cynical that, you know, a couple of people like, you know, uh, have leverage over politicians or like pulling the strings or yeah. and like that. So it kind of plays into people's like, oh, yeah, I was right about that. Totally. 
It's so fun to hear you think about this stuff out loud. How do you think about the mix of, of what you are trying to do in terms of explaining and context and analysis versus scoops and breaking news mm -hmm. and like driving conversation in that way? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I want to, I want to have scoops. I want to have like interesting nuggets, but I think I also have to be realistic about my, um, constraints and like the form that the New Yorker works best in. So like one, one, the media beat and the political beat are super crowded, like super, super crowded with people that are like very, I mean like very scoops driven. So like you open up Semaphore's newsletter or Lachlan Cartwright's newsletter and they're like, here's a scoop, here's a scoop. And like, that stuff is great. And like, I, I'm certainly jealous of certain things. I also think that probably my strength and the strength of the New Yorker form or like what people expect from us is more analytical, more explanatory. But ideally, I'm getting something out of an interview with a person or like I'm adding some sort of context or whatever that, that does make it a value add that like makes it worthwhile to like, Hey, you should read me Claire. In addition to having read the scoop by, you know, whatever someone else, because I'm going to like, I'm going to add a layer. Mm -hmm. That's my, I think that's my goal, but sure. I'm, I like, I would be, you know, I'm always trying to be a better reporter and, um, you know, I want people to come and talk to me and, but also feel like when they come and talk to me, like I'm going to give you something different. I'm going to give you space or like thoughtfulness because the form that I write in allows that. And I think this is the best place to like, you know, write about this or like tell you tell your side of the story, whatever it might be. Like, I think that's the thing I think I like, you know, I have to lean into, but also I'm only like a year or so into the media beat. So I'm still kind of like figuring it out. You know, it's like, you know, the New Yorker media beat used to be Canaletta writing cool, big profiles of like Titans. Yeah. And we still want to do that, but the Titans have more PR people mm -hmm. and like, it's, you know, and it, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's harder. Like there's, a, there's definitely like, uh, access stuff you have to think about. One of the experiences I had reading that Chris Licht profile yeah, was like, this is the last time anyone's going to do this until people forget, which is probably like a four to six year cycle. Yeah. I mean, and I was like reporting a Zaslav profile who was Chris Lick's boss. Yeah. Around the time that, or like think, trying to convince them around the time that the Chris Lick piece came out. And I was like, well, fuck. Like, <laughs> and, you know, I still think people should talk to us. Like, uh huh. I mean, I, you wrote that profile. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a bit of a write around. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the beauty of a magazine profile is like Tim Alberta's advantage was that he could come in and like, just burn not like burn some people because like he doesn't have to write about this day in day out right uh -huh. like and i think that's the beauty of a magazine profile and like i don't begrudge him at all like he got some he got great stuff and like go after it and yeah i think people's like journalists are always going to write want to write profiles they're always going to want more access it's it's the publicist's prerogative to say like no mm -hmm. but like you know then i think you just like have to kind of yeah, figure out ways around, but I did have, I ha, I, ha, I shared the same sentiment of like, ooh. Yeah. Ooh, that's a. <laughs> it's, it's not going to, it's not going to entice people to do it. No. Shh, we should stop reminding them of the. Well, I want to, I want to dig into that for a little bit more. Can we use that Zaslav profile as a, as a way to talk about that? Because. Yeah. 
what is the case that you are making to his people that he should talk to you? Um, well, it didn't really work, but you know, I think, uh, in a media landscape that is going through, like, I think after the summer, we can almost agree, like sort of quasi catastrophic change. Um, he is a new player at a new company with this almost like farcical amount of debt. You know, it, f- it feels a little bit like, you know, I'm not comparing this to like 2008 Wall Street, but like the amount of debt that Warner Brothers Discovery was created with. So the the company that David Zaslav now heads is like two years old and it has like billions upon billions upon billions worth of debt and it has to uh, get out of the hole somehow. And it's doing it at a time in the industry where it's like really, really hard to make money because all our habits have changed. And so my pitch to them is like, um, it's a really interesting company like, there's so much debate around whether or not it's going to work right now. I want to hear like his pitch about why he can do it, why he's audacious. Like I think he's like, and it's interesting that he's kind of this new character that he's like struggling to get through. Like what's his, what's it going to look like? Like I, my thing was like, I want to, I want to see like what, what it actually looks like to like be the new person trying to make this like quasi impossible company work. And I think, well, listen, they didn't get, they didn't give me uh, the access that I wanted. It ended up mostly being a write around. I mean, you know, like they cooperated with fact checking and stuff like that. Um, Did you think that they would? No, I was pretty sure they weren't going to. I mean, I had been talking to them for a long time and I think there's a lot of other people who are interested and maybe we'll, we'll see more Zaslov profiles. Mm-hmm. I think we will. Um, Stay tuned. Knowing that, did you feel some pressure to get it out? Oh, I crashed that piece because I I wanted to beat a piece that I knew was coming out, mm-hmm. which has since been pushed, but I think will still come out. But I wrote that piece in like, I, like I wrote a draft in like five days because I was really panicked that like, so that, so that piece was actually like, I wanted more, you know, in an ideal world, I would have spent more time and, you know, maybe there would have been a world in which he talked to me. Probably not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that, that piece was written and published really quickly. It was like, <laughs> my apologies to the fact checkers. It was not, it was not like a fun, uh, like month, like from Is that part weeks. of your, part of your, um, empathetic earnest side? Cause you were also a fact checker at the New Yorker. So you're thinking about <laughs> yes, that experience oh, definitely. all the time. Yeah. It's like a very, that's a very stressful, like sometimes thankless job. Yeah. It's, you feel very, I mean, I don't think I've ever been as stressed as I was when I was a checker. <laughs> like I would go home on Fridays and just like feel a pit in my stomach all weekend. Cause like, if you get something wrong then it's like your ass is really out there, but it's, but at the end of the day, like as a writer, like it's all on me. Like it's my reporting. Like mm-hmm. it's my, it's my, it's not the fact checkers fault. It's like, you know, all, it's like all the facts kind of ultimately it, it's my name. So even if that's not how it felt to you when you were checking. Yeah. But like, I think, you know, to be perfectly honest, certain certain writers respect fact checkers more than others. And I think that's at every publication, you mm-hmm. know, like. Um, Do you think there's like a one to one ratio of respect to having done it? A hundred percent. Every most fact checkers I know, like and there's a few fact checkers who are staff writers now at The New Yorker. And like, I think we all do our own calls. Like we all do our own fact checking calls. And then we let the fact checkers fact it's just a control freak thing. But like, I, I feel like I've done it. I'm like, this is how I want to, cause fact checking is also like, it's a people job, right? It's like, you want to, totally. you want to, it's like you're re-reporting the piece, but you also gotta be a little, you gotta be a little charming in the room. You gotta <laughs> like, you know, 
Um, was that I, like a, an art that you learned or is that something you just kind of have? Being a fact checker was like the best job because it was like going to magazine journalism school. So you get to, you get the, like as a writer, I'm sort of isolated, you know, like I file my draft to my editor and like, you know, you kind of wait in the wilderness and like, you know, you're, you're really like siloed as a checker, particularly like it's not even that long ago, but like we did everything like on paper still, Mm -hmm. they circulated drafts, like makeup circulated drafts around. It was very stressful, but I think like the best, like one of the best jobs to, to like have to move to the next level in journalism. And when you were doing that, was the idea of coming back and getting a staff gig at the New Yorker the goal? Uh, if, uh, it, I don't think it ever like crossed my mind. Like there were two ways, like at that time there were two ways to do it. You could either like stay as a checker and like pitch, at that point it was like pitch stuff to the website. I didn't actually have much success. Like I was trying to write, like, so I wrote elsewhere and I just, whatever, for whatever reason they weren't picking up what I was putting down. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the other path was to leave the New Yorker, get a, get a job somewhere else, um, which is what I did. Cause I just think I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to like stay in part. I also, the job, the other job paid more <laughs> newsflash. Yeah. Being a fact checker, the New Yorker doesn't pay that much. <laughs> so, uh, so I also felt like I needed to make more money. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I had in my head, I'm going to be a staff writer at the New Yorker. Of course, like, of course I would, would have been like, yeah, that's a great, that's good. I think, I think I knew I wanted to like have a steady job at some point somewhere. And like 538 was my first full-time writing job. And I was like, I don't, how old was I? 27, 28, 28. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, like now let's do, let's do it now. So, so that felt like a good, um, I'm going to leave and do something and like, we'll see what happens. How do you feel about your 538 experience now? Uh, I'm very grateful for it. I'm very grateful that Nate like took a chance on me because I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been a, the person who became my editor and is like one of my very good friends, Chad Matlin, who by the way is like 538 recently ended. And so they laid off a bunch of smart people. So if you're an editor listening to this, you should hire Chadwick Matlin, uh, star editor, Anyway, so Chad has worked worked at Five Thirty Eight from the inception, and he sent me the job posting, and I've kept this email. He was like, "I think you should apply for this," and like I read the job description. This is what I mean when I say I didn't have confidence. And the job description was like, you know, hiring for like a campaign reporter, like must have covered like at least one presidential campaign, blah blah blah. And I wrote back and I was like, unless I blacked out and covered a presidential campaign, like I'm in no way qualified for this job. And he was like, No, 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 you should apply. You should apply. That's good. And I think they liked that I was a fact checker. Mm-hmm. I had worked at a politics magazine in D.C. before. And um, Nate took a chance on me. And I'm always very grateful to him for that. And they let me... They had gotten some criticism. I think that they were responding to it of like, you know, this is in the 538 had left the Times. And there had been, shockingly for the Times, like drama around like, <laughs> are these guys trying to replace like regular schmegular campaign reporting? So in some ways, I think the job that I was hired for, which was like at the very beginning of the 2016 primary cycle. So I started like mid-December 2015. Mm-hmm. They were like, okay, well, we're going to combine data journalism with regular campaign reporting. And look, we hired a regular schmegular journalist to do it. And so I felt very grateful that it was like, I, I think other places wouldn't have hired me given my background ex- and experience. And Nate hired me 
paid me like an amount of money I thought was like really nice. Mm-hmm. And then just like, let me kind of like do stuff. Like, you know, I think the first, you know, and some of it was like stuff I wouldn't, probably wouldn't want to write today, but it was like, like I, you know, I think my first long piece for them was like, this is the most successful pollster in America. And I like went to Iowa and hung yeah. out with this lady, yeah, Ann yeah. Selzer, and she was like delightful. I got to know Iowa. I got to like, I remember like being at a bar with Nate in Iowa and he, <laughs> he was like talking about polling stuff. And I remember taking out my phone and starting to record him because I was like, I don't fucking understand what he's talking about. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go over this later. So he was, it was, it also felt like I was learning a lot of stuff. It probably, play, like everyone else there was sort of cynical too about covering politics. And mm-hmm. I just found, especially during that first cycle, they let me travel a lot. Um, I just kind of got to like learn on the job. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that. I think it was like, as it went on, and like when Chad, I think Chad became my editor after Trump won a couple of years in. And like we tried to, we were kind of like, okay, like how do we cover, now how do we cover America? Like how do we cover, and there always had to be like, the thing that annoyed me was like there always had to be a data component to the story. Right. Sometimes I was like, I just want to write about that person because they're interesting. And like, I don't, why do I have to find the I data? Thought I, I thought I was allowed to be the regular schmegular journalist. Yeah, too. yeah. But there always had to be data. So there was like a little bit of like fatigue after a while about always having to find the data. But on the other hand... I think that that probably trained me to be like so much more analytical about stuff. There were so many smart people there who just like didn't think like magazine people. And I, and I mean that in like a really good way. They didn't hire a lot from Ivy's. Like it was just a very different newsroom. There were a lot of people who had like quanti backgrounds who were like, like it was just so, you know, I feel, I feel almost guilty about saying this as a woman and a, and a mother to daughters, but like, I've never been like a math person. And so, and so, which I don't, you know, it's just, it has nothing to do with my gender. It's just my brain. And so it was funny to be like an English person in a math person's world uh-huh. and to try to be f- figuring it out. And I think that was a good challenge, but you know, definitely after a while I was like, I kind of just want to like write a regular magazine story. Mm-hmm. And I think there was certainly Trump fatigue. Yeah. So, so, you know, you know, still friends with Nate, still grateful for the opportunity. They like really gave me a lot of room. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, the podcast that, that we ended up doing was like the chat podcast with people that you have like chemistry with, like conversational chemistry with are fun. And it is like, you know, like what we're doing right now. I do miss that right now because like you can think out loud about how you feel about, you know, analyzing American culture, you can like get pushback, right? Like totally. I mean, I was reading your stuff then, but probably listening to you more mm-hmm. than I was reading it. Sure. Yeah. And it was interesting then to go and read your stuff because it felt to me like tonally there was like a little bit of a gap between like Claire on the mic and Claire on the page. Ooh, tell me about that. Oh, I feel like um almost purely because of the medium there was like the writing was just more formal sure you know and my sense of you on the show is that you were like both giving and talking some shit yeah it was you know (laughs) um and it was fun like it was fun fun. to listen to yeah um i mean you know it's funny like definitely more people listened i think that always like partially irritated me because i was like well i wish people would actually read the shit i'm writing and reporting because it's much more like thoughtful than like what i'm um arguing about on the podcast like you know whatever i think i think there is like um 
real value in listening to other people work through ideas. The thing that I found irritating about people's feedback about the podcast was it was always gendered, like Claire is the foil to Nate or Claire is the girl, like the woman, like there was a certain tokenization that I felt, which I really chafed at, like Mm -hmm. internally. I was like, no, I'm just like one of the people on the podcast who I am a woman, not just like I happen to be a woman. I am a woman. I obviously have a different perspective, but I found the sort of like, um, now there's the phrase for it. Like the, it developed people who are 538 fans developed like weird parasocial understandings of the podcast dynamic and i was like whoa i just joined this to like write (laughs) write some political pieces like i didn't realize that this is becoming it kind of all got like people develop these sort of wild allegiances and i was like this is i don't know how i feel about being in the center of this i'm not saying you were that kind of listener but it existed no no no. that that all makes sense to me and i do wonder how that experience informs covering media now like because nate was a real like lightning rod for a totally. lot of the time that you were yeah. there. 538 was getting written about uh, and covered like in its ups and downs and travails. Mm-hmm. Like it was a thing that yeah. people were interested in. Well, not interested enough because it closed. <laughs> <laughs> That's on you, America. <laughs> but even like, yeah, no, I, I mean, get what you mean. I get what you mean. It was a media story that totally. you were a part of. Now you are reporting media stories. I mean, even when you're talking about like the uh, record number of layoffs, like that's also something you've experienced. Sure, yeah. And I, I am interested in that meta-ness of covering a story that you have also been a part of and whether it makes you a better or more empathetic reporter, whether it gives you some weird distance from those stories. Do you, you know what I mean? Like I, it's a thing I don't totally understand even having yeah. hosted this podcast about journalism for a very long time. <laughs> well, I mean, just Nate specifically, like he's certainly such a lightning rod. He makes himself such, right? Like he's, he would tell you, he, he like likes being the outsider. I think he only sort of knows how, how to function as like an outsider and sort of like, there's a certain contra- contrarianism to him. I mean, I think um, working at a place like that, knowing the ins and outs of Twitter discourse, it does it does always make me like, okay, I'm going to read the Twitter discourse. I'm going to read the pieces, but like, uh, let's also be skeptical of that. Like, what's what's actually going on? Like, what are the dynamics? Like, when BuzzFeed News closed, I thought that was an interesting... I felt there were like weird parallels to me because, in, in part because like, Jonah Peretti, Nate Silver, Ezra Klein. There was a period in media where there was like, um, hey, these like these like brainy young men are starting websites, and like they became the website. So like everyone who wrote for Five Thirty Eight, I felt like always kind of had to. There was always like a patina of Nate on them, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, the the website even said Nate Silver's Five Thirty Eight, right? You couldn't get away from it. Um, you know, like I think to, I think Ezra did an interesting thing of sort of like. Removing himself at some point from like, I think he just kind of became like a regular writer, not the editor in chief. And obviously Jonah Peretti was never like the editor, like Ben Smith and other people were editor of, of BuzzFeed News. But there was always sort of like, there was a period of media where we were like, this wonderkind, I mean, not even, right? Like a lot of them were in their mid thirties, but we love to, we love to call uh, men in their thirties boys, CSBF. <laughs> um, like there was always some sort of like, trickle down effect on the media organizations and i think covering media now 
I'm always kind of like, okay, there's like a discourse around the person who started it, but like, what's the thing actually doing? Like, what's the actual story? So like when BuzzFeed News closed, it was like, Jonah Peretti's failed, right? Like that was kind of the story of it. It was like, he was wrong and a lot of people, people paid for it with their jobs. Mm-hmm. It's a bummer of a story. People are angry at him. But, but also I kind of like, there was like talking to former employees, there was this interesting thing of like, they were mad at him, but they also like recognized that at a certain point in time, like he had a really good idea or he had like an idea about how to like make the journalism business work and it failed. 538 failed, right? They didn't monetize at the right time. No one, 538 was always like this weird orphan, like ESPN bought it, never monetized it because it was like too weird. It should have been, there was a period where they were like shopping around, like, was the Atlantic going to buy it? Was the Washington Post going to buy it? Never happened. It mm-hmm. should totally be a paywalled subscription service. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, when I was an employee there, I was like, I don't want that. I want people to read my stuff. I want, like, I want people to have good quality news. I think I've developed a cynicism about business models. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Is like having been a part of a very specific niche organization that failed ultimately and have it coming out of an era of journalism of those very specific niche organizations, many of which are now failing. I think maybe I think more about business models than other journalists do. So maybe as like, uh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we all think about business models now, but I think that's kind of what I take out of my 538 experience in some ways is like, we need the media business to work. We need democracy to work. We need like people to trust our stuff. We also need to survive. And like, and then there's all these other stories about like nonprofit journalism is nonprofit journalism going and being efficient in the, in the places that it should be in like actual news deserts. Is it just like making kind of liberal leading websites that only liberals will read in like certain cities? Like there's lots of stuff about something about the way you said that gave me a sense of what your opinion is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think like, you know, being laid off, working in a very specific type of site from a specific era of media that has mostly failed, like, does make you think about, like, well, what's going to survive? What's going to survive is, like, the New York Times. What form is the New York Times going to take? Is it going to be the New York Times that it was 10 or 15 years ago? Obviously not. Yeah. Um, but I even mean, like, tone-wise, story format-wise, the Times is changing, right? It's sort of, like, now a lot of stories are those, like, live blogs, which they use to get more traffic to pull more types of people in, not just the sort of traditional Times reader. So what's going to exist? Is the New York Times, probably the New Yorker, <laughs> yeah, probably the Atlantic, you know, TV in some form or another. I think like cable news needs smart journalism to exist because a lot of cable news is just like cannibalizing print reporting. Yeah. Um, but we have to think about like what what's going to actually survive business model wise. Otherwise, like you can't, then you can't, you have to think obviously about the civic side of it, but you have to like make good news sustainable in some way. There was a strain of cars column, like at its height, which is very different than how Ben treated that column where he would like, I don't know if it was every other week, but every third or once a month or something, it was like, I don't fucking know, but these guys are trying. Right was like a whole genre of David Carr column. Yeah. Which is like, couldn't tell you if this business is going to work, but like, I love the fact that they're trying and I'm going to continue to highlight. Do you feel like that there's some way that you can be playing in that same space? That's That's like a really interesting way to put it. I do think we should be paying attention. Like, 
are there like should we be highlighting like do I want to do like a sort of not puffy like these you know there there is a certain sense of like th- there is like a certain puffery around this person's doing it but if I think they're interesting and like there's a story like yeah I want to like talk about yeah something that's working something that's new I mean I feel like I was just talking with someone last night about um like when Semaphore started I mean obviously Ben did a lot of <laughs> a lot of press before it started and then there were a bunch of us were like we all kind of had the same idea we were like uh hey, like, can we, like, kind of chronicle, like, what it's like to open, you know, a business at this time? And, like, their PR woman at that point in time was like, mm, no, we're going to just launch <laughs> it first. But, yeah, there was, like, interest in something like Semaphore. And I think, um, you know, I did, I profiled Puck, which is, like, yeah. the newsletter for the rich and famous is kind of how it builds itself. But, like, I think what Puck does really well is it's Hollywood coverage. Like, they did, they covered stuff super well totally. there's there's some stuff about that Puck's, show the town is really good yeah and yeah matt bellany like knows what he's talking about like i i it's working it's working like i think that stuff is good so i so i think like there are like when i wrote about puck i certainly wrote about them skeptically but also like it is they are trying something the ankler is trying something substack is trying something like substack and the you know the guy who runs substack will tell you like one day all media will be like the ankler, right? Sort of like tied together by a back end, maybe sharing similar editors, but like maybe you have a different front page for, you know, different things. Like there's certainly like the past three years post pandemic, there've been evolving forms of like, how do you be an independent journalism and make it independent journalist and make it sustainable? What I hear you saying is that you are trying to, find the middle of the Venn diagram between eye roll journalism and models that could really work. Yeah. I mean, like, listen, I, I'll, I chafe a little at eye roll journalism because I do think I write fair pieces and fair pieces are innately skeptical about like, you know, is this going to work? And, but yes, like, I, yes, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think to be fair to your friends, they were talking less about like what's on the page and, and more, more about, about demeanor, but <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, I think like uh, a balance of, of healthy skepticism and also like, I think what I was asking about was this idea in the same way like that you were talking about in that Ben profile that his political party was journalism. Like when you are, by disposition, going to be skeptical, going to hold people to account, going to look at things critically. Yeah. And also you have a personal vested interest in someone figuring out how the fuck it's going to work. Totally. That thing feels interesting to me in your ongoing coverage. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it comes back to, um, I would like the profession of journalism to continue in a high quality way. So like you do want younger people to like want to get into journalism. Like, so, and younger people, and there's a lot of like, you know, grumpiness about this in, in newsrooms where people are like, young people don't want to work as much and like work is hard. And it's like, all right, let's, people want to be paid well. They want to like, they want to get good overtime. There's lots of, they basically want, like, listen, I think journalism is always like, you're going to work a lot of hours if you want to be successful and you're probably not going to make as much money as like, you know, like your dumb friend from college does. What? <laughs> so, but like you're choosing it for a different reason. Yeah. And, but I do think we have to make efforts to have the industry be a middle-class profession. What is middle-class in New York? 
it's actually something I Googled like a couple of weeks ago. I was like, what, what is middle class in New York City? It's, that's, that's a harder yeah, thing. Yeah. But like you do want younger people to come in and find this to be a sustainable you know, model. You want to be able to like train them in journalism values. Like, you know, if you haven't gone to J school, you should be able to have a job where someone's like really teaching you. How, like you're writing this piece where you like kick the shit out of someone. Well, you got to call them. Yeah, well, I mean, this is you the gotta, thing like, that you, you, gotta, and you I don't said. Think that, I don't think that exists for a lot of people, like the training. No, I, I think that almost um, all of the paths or most of the paths that I know of are either gone or yeah. as difficult to get on as, as anything, you know? And it's so interesting because that's basically what your description of both being a checker at The New Yorker and working at 538 was, was that you got to learn on the job. And I, I just think like yeah. the paths to learn on the job are so few. And it seems so integral to how almost everyone I know who does this totally well or like or you have to do an internship, which may not pay. I mean, like yeah, that's it. Like I, I used to run the intern talks at the American Prospect, and I remember uh, John Judas came in and did an intern talk. Like we had like Ezra Klein, and I think Ezra's advice. I don't know how it, he wasn't that old. He was probably like twenty six or something, and his advice was like. Um, work really hard. Like the advantage you have over other people is like, you don't have, you're not married or have kids. Like you just have to work really hard right now. And I was like, okay. And then John, John Judas's advice, John Judas was like, I don't know, 50 something like delightful, you know, old liberal journalist. And he was like, my advice, marry rich. He was like, I married a dentist, steady job. And it, he was dead serious. It was not a joke. And I was like, okay, okay. My intern talks have really run the gamut here. That's tangible advice. But like, but I do think, you know, yeah, like we have to think about who, who, like, who are our younger editors? How are you training younger editors? Who are you hiring? Like, are you going to find someone really smart on your social media team who like actually wants to be a journalist, but the only way they got in the door was like being your social media manager? Like, I feel like there's also like, you have to see beyond like certain, like now the, the, the entryway jobs into journalism, I think are a little different. I can hear in what you're talking about uncertainty around the models yeah, and uncertainty around the future of the profession. But do you feel personally like you have made it like you are on the other side of some wave that may still crash or is crashing? No, 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 I don't. Th I think that's like, um, no, you, you don't feel like you're on solid ground. I think I have, I think I'm a staff writer at a great magazine. I also think I still have to produce good work. Um, I think I have a lot of like a lot of stuff to learn. I also feel like this profession is going to change so much over my lifetime that like I do sit and think like what like what am I going to be doing when I'm 60? Cuz like I do think that there's ageism in journalism that's unfortunate um and that you do have to adapt like listen I think the New Yorker's going to exist for a long time. But like I don't know what in, in what form. I think a lot I think that's like pretty open like that people would say there'll always be long articles of the New Yorker but like what's it going to look like and what's mm -hmm. there's just like a lot of stuff that w that is changing and I think to be like self-satisfied and be like, I made it is to like, is death. That's a pretty clear answer. <laughs> For the record, I wasn't saying like, he seemed pretty smug. Like <laughs> no, I, I, no, I that, didn't think you were saying it. That question is, is do you feel comfortable? Y yes, I feel comfortable. I feel like, um, you know, I really like my editor. I really like the publication. I feel like they're, 
letting like like 538 like letting me do stuff that i'm interested in and like um i feel stable right now i feel like i <laughs> feel like i don't have to run out and marry a dentist um normally that would be a perfect place to end an interview <laughs> except we haven't talked about a, a thing that we have to talk about which is this hassan minhaj story that you wrote a couple of weeks ago yeah which i think is probably the most widely read thing that you've written since you got to the new yorker yeah, I don't know. They don't tell us Stravic. They don't tell you those things. Well, <laughs> anecdotally, it seems that way it to seems, me. It seems, yeah, I think it's, yeah. Um, can we spend just a couple minutes talking yeah, about that course. story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, take me through it. How did you find that one and how did you go about reporting it? Yeah. Um, contrary to what some people think on Twitter, I was not like watching his special and saying like, ooh, that, that seems wrong. It, it was basically a tip. So yeah. through the grapevine. Um, I think he's if like... The, if you were watching his special and thinking that, it'd be like, eh, it's not a very fun person to watch TV with. <laughs> Unfun. Not fun at parties. Um, yeah, I got a tip. And, you know, I, I think he has been sort of in, like, the comedy world a little bit looked askance at for a while or just kind of like, you know, I don't think he's beloved by certain circles of the comedy world. So, yeah, I did kind of get a tip where people were like, oh, there's some, like, some, you know, funny stuff happening. And I kind of just like went down the garden path and was like, oh yeah, that doesn't check out. And, um, you know, part of the story was also about, you know, as I started like looking into Hassan and um, his show Patriot Act had some like, after its cancellation in the pandemic, a lot, some people came out on Twitter and were, were unhappy with the workplace. Um, as I report in the story, there was, you know, th- you know, a threat of litigation that settled out of court from a couple of employees. So there was like stuff going on. Stuff floating around. And it just, I mean, in some ways it like, um, honestly, I think like the workplace story is, is like probably almost like a whole separate story. And I think the most, you know, w- what I had sort of come to the story as was like, and what we thought was a really interesting line of inquiry was like this gray area of comedy news what is permissible on stage? Like almost like what is an art crime? Yeah. And like, what can you qualify as an art crime? And then, yeah, it's just it, like, it's, it was interesting to think about like the place of comedy in American culture right now. Um, and, and so, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I reported the story out at some point actually during the summer, we almost killed it. Cause we were like, is this a, is there a there there? Mm-hmm. There is a there there. Right. But it was like, I was also reporting this as off profile. So it was a little on and off, but, um, yeah, I mean, in some ways it was like a pretty straightforward, there was some door knocking aspects to it, but it was also just like talking to a lot of people in his life and people he had worked with, you know, like people who had circulated in the Hassan universe. And at what point in the process do you reach out to him directly? And what's it like when you guys finally sit down? Is yeah. that like a comedy place, right? <laughs> yeah, his suggestion. Um, I had done... I felt really secure in like my reporting before I reached out to them because it was one of those stories where like Rob, my editor and I were kind of like, well, we have to feel really good about what we're bringing when we actually ask them to to talk. And like we, and my posture throughout the whole thing was always like, we need to write this in the way that like, we don't want to be pedantic and like we're fact checking. Like the tone has to be right about this piece. And we also want to go to him like with very open, like, Hey, are we wrong about this? Yeah, yeah. And also like have a converse like to us it was like we ha- we want to be like open to having the conversation. So I think I reached out to his publicist sometime in the summer. 
and said, like, hey, I've done some reporting, like, talked to some people. And, like, I just, like, I want to talk to him about, like, some of his... I can't remember exactly how I phrase it, but, like, you know, like, honesty and, and comedy. And, like, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with him. They put me off at first about... Because they were like, well, we can't talk about stuff because it's, you know, it's the... They were kind of trying to hide behind the, like, strike media gag. Um, and we kind of dropped it for a while because I was doing the Zaslav thing. And then after Zaslav published, I picked it up and was like, hey, so like, oh, well, it's funny. After Maybe a week after I had the conversation with the publicist, an item appeared in Variety about how Hassan Minhaj was a top contender for The Daily Show. And I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, but I don't have time to like, I don't, you know, I, listen, I'm not saying they, they planted it, but like, you know, it was interesting. Yeah. And then after um, the Zaslav piece went up, I was basically just like, they know, like I know through the grapevine that they basically know what I'm, I've been talking to a lot of people and I just, you know, emailed his publicist and was like, hey, like kind of pretty straightforward, like we need to talk. Like, I don't think this falls under the strike rules. Like, you know, friendly but firm, kind of like we're doing this piece and you guys should talk to us. I think that was over Labor Day weekend. I didn't hear from her. And then I got a call, I think the Tuesday morning from like a, an outside crisis publicist who was like, Hey, I'm the publicist now. And it kind of went from there. And I did a call with her and, uh, basically said, I think this, you'll probably just do a fact check with us. Um, but it ended up, but I said at the end of the conversation, I was like, I think you should talk to us. Um, cause I want to talk to him about what's going on here. And they made the decision to talk. He suggested that we talk at, I think it was initially we were going to meet at the Olive Tree Cafe, which is the, which is the cafe above the Comedy Cellar or connected to the Comedy Cellar. They were doing work there. So we went to the basement of the Fat Black Pussycat. And, it, you know, the, it was very on the nose, the location, mm-hmm. which I kind of said to him, like, oh, this is very on the nose. And, and yes. And so we had, I think, you know, like an hour and 15, hour and 20 minute conversation where I just like asked him, you know, I let him kind of open and sort of said his, said his piece. And then I kind of went through and asked him all the questions and I felt pretty, you know, I'd done the reporting. I'd like talk to everyone. I'd talk to all the city authorities and security guards and, you know, people involved with security at the show. I felt like I kind of knew, mm-hmm. but I wanted to, I wanted him to tell me if I was wrong. And I also wanted him to talk out like why those choices had been made. Is that a hard conversation or a fun conversation for you? It was, um, I felt pretty relaxed during it in part because, um, I mean, pretty early on, he kind of said his like bit about emotional truths and I was like, oh, I think he's admitting to it. So I felt like it was more like, I'm just going to run through all the incidents, fact, kind of like the fact checking, but kind of also ask over and over in different ways. Like, okay, but why that? Like Mm -hmm. what's too far is using your kid too much too far. What are your what are your boundaries? How do you think about this? Did anything that he said in that conversation change the way you're thinking about it? I felt like I knew what his answer like. There was almost like only one answer to give if you were gonna kind of like admit that you'd made stuff up. I mean, like having having thought about it a lot, like my my understanding of the lies, the fabrications were always that there were writing tick of his, Mm -hmm. which is how he actually ended up explaining some of them, which is. I kind of refer to it as like Forrest Gumpism. Like he always placed himself at the center of the narrative in part because it's easier, right? It's easier to write in and out of a story or a joke 
if you're at the center of the narrative. So like with with the FBI informant story in his stand-up special, the the kind of story is leading up to this real event where this person in the next town over is a real guy who had a coerced confession. Like, and I it, I watched it, you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, like he's just conflating he's conflating the stories. Like that's what's happening. Like it was pretty easy. Mm-hmm to see, and if you think about it as a writing problem, to see what he was saying. So, like, when he was giving me the answers, he was sort of putting his own words to... And I'd also listen to a lot of podcasts he'd done talking about how he thinks about comedy. I mean, he's sort of very upfront about, like, he almost calls himself, like, a failed stand-up. Like, Mm -hmm. he kind of moved from stand-up into this more amorphous, like, one-man show, storytelling kind of vibe, which I think, which, again, like, I think rankles a lot of comics. Like... If you want to listen to a kind of tense interview, Mark Maron's interview with him is like, you can tell they don't agree about stuff. Um, so, but no, I don't think anything he said particularly surprised me. It was more just sort of like, okay. And I mean, I did ask him, like, this didn't make it into the piece, I don't think, but like a thing that people over and over were kind of like, did he make up that thing about his daughter? You know, the, the yeah, he, he made up the that, anthrax thing. That, that, yeah. And I... um I was curious to like as to what he would say about like what's too far with kids. And I think he cited I think he said it was like a Chris Rock line where it's like you know it's comedy's paying for your private school so you're fair game. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was like, "All right, well, you know, I do think there's obviously there's like stories that are fair game about family life, right? But I do think there's also, you know, a lot of a lot of um parents now like, you know, you block your kids' face if you post about them on social media or something. And I think he occasionally does that. And so if you're doing that, like how does that jibe with creating a story about this person that's very public that they don't have control over? Did anything surprise you about how the story was received? Maybe naively I didn't think it would be this. the, The virality of the story shocked me almost. Really? Yeah. Well, and in part because, like, um, again, we almost killed it over mm-hmm. the summer. Like, I distinctly remember, like, going over to a friend's house and being like, I'm kind of bummed. Like, I just, like, I did a lot of work on something. I'm not sure it's going to come to fruition. Because we wanted to be really sure that there was a there there and that it felt fair. And, like, um, so I think there was that in my head. And also, yeah, I, I think a lot of it was just, like, I, it obviously hit on a lot of stuff about, you know, it got picked up by a lot of conservatives, mm-hmm. like a lot of like, you know, like the Daily Wire type people, like the Matt Walsh sort of set of people. And it was used to say like, um, look, there's like this uh, victimization culture, right? That that like this guy is playing into that like liberals only like victims. So there was a discourse on the on the far right. Then there was also this interesting discourse on the left or like more progressive, more mainstream, mainstream Twitter, where it was like, what does it say about, I had always thought about like, is Hassan misleading his audience? Like, is he abusing the trust of his audience? And I thought there was an interesting discourse that I hadn't really thought about, about like, what does it say about his audience? I think it's a presumed largely white audience. He obviously has like a ton of like fans in the South Asian community, like Desi, community but there was also like what does it say about the white audience that these are the stories of racism that they want to hear and that those are the stories of racism that they'll connect to versus like honestly the more mundane 
instances of it. Hassan has obviously experienced racism in his life. Obviously. Like, you know, he's not like, he has not made up racism. He fabricated instances of it, which is like not okay to do because it lessens the experience of uh, uh, people to whom those very bad things have happened, like police entrapment. But I thought that I thought there were interesting narratives that unspooled that were all touching around this, like, how do we talk about victimhood? How mm-hmm. do we talk about what people expect racism looks like? And so it, it definitely took a life of its own on the criticism element, which I thought was re- like was really interesting. And then there were there were certainly people who were like, you know, congratulations, you like fact checked a comedy special, which is also an allowed response. Um, <laughs> But it certainly, we like, you know, we, I mean, it was like, I don't remember how many words it was, but it was like, a, it was a substantial piece. And like, sure. I spent a lot of time on it and I felt, I felt good about the reporting. And I was like, yeah, this is a piece of reporting that I feel, feel like is both good reporting and an interesting subject area that I think will be interesting. But I didn't realize how much it was sort of like playing into things that people really have a lot of thoughts on. There are two reasons I'm curious about that response to the piece and one of them has to do with the piece itself which it, it felt to me reading it and and even you know i read it when it came out and then reread it right before we talked with all of those conversations happening in between and in both instances i was quite struck by it's kind of reserved mm-hmm. yeah like you're playing with a different and subtle idea when there was a path with the reporting that you had to sort of like go for the jugular a little bit. Oh my God. I hate that stuff though. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not saying no, no, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. should have, I think you, no, no, uh, yeah, yeah. you made the right choice. Like, but certainly there are other people who in that position would have written a piece that was attempting to be damning and like door shutting. Yeah. And yours has a bunch of open-ended questions in it, like mm-hmm. about, art and comedy and truth and where lines are and who gets to draw the lines. And, you know, not all of those questions far from it are resolved, which I think is, is part of why people were able to project onto it their own like interests and perspectives and curiosities. You know, it's just like, it's pretty open and it didn't have to be. Yeah. I think when, you know, when a reporter, when we've talked a lot in the past couple of years about like objectivity and subjectivity in journalism and like bringing in biases and, um, to go back to like, you could have gone for the jugular and I was like, Oh, I hate those stories. Okay. I hate those stories in part because like, I listen, I love muckraking. Like I like good reporting. I think a lot of journalism though, it's like tone really matters. Like Again, I like the New York Post as much as the next, you know, guilty. <laughs> but like, there's some, there's some fun stuff. But like, when you're writing about, I feel like you have to like um, respect your reader and respect that they'll get it without you like hammering it over the head. It's just like kind of boring to be like, gotcha. And also this particular instance like wasn't gotcha. It's like a genuine gray area that like, I think I know how I feel about Hassan's lies. And I think it's disingenuous for journalists to be like, oh, I don't know, it's up to the reader to decide. Every journalist, by what they present in a story and how they write, and just writing the story itself, is presenting you with kind of how they think you should, you know, synthesize the issue. And I think we should be honest about that, right? We are, like, even in a newspaper story, right, you are, like, 
leading the reader to some conclusion. Tons and tons of choices every time. Tons of choices. I also think like, to go back to like trusting journalism, you trust the information more when the journalist is trusting your intellect or trusting your ability to like derive your own thought from this. Like I've done the work. I think I make it clear that like in this story, what he did probably crossed a line, but there are probably other instances where I, Claire Malone, who have pedantically fact-checked a comedy special would be like, that's fine. Like Mm -hmm. it's okay to make up that. And I think the piece should both be, specific about this instance but it should also allow us to like broaden out and like talk about something else so i do think there was the the reserved tone or the was was specifically because i think it's genuinely like an area that like you don't want to be like gotcha because it kind of sends the wrong message about the conversation you're trying to elicit but it also like i am telling you something like pretty specific but i want you to still trust me i think the second part of the reason i was interested in the reaction is about what you're talking about because part of what you have been covering for the last year, part of what you can see in certainly in political coverage and from political operatives, like the same sliding door stuff is that what is rewarded on an individual basis in like the media climate that we are currently living in is like this person gotcha that person. Mm -hmm. And the way that story would have been received if you had gone for the jugular is a pretty sloppy term, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You would have been a much bigger part of how that story was received in the world. Yeah. Totally. And, and I think it's virality was like around ideas. Yeah. And not about you. And many people are making the choice, I think, right now to make it about themselves. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, it's funny. I keep on thinking in this conversation, I keep on going back to like political journalism too. Cause it's like, you know, I thought a lot about CNN and like the Chris Licht era rebranding of CNN. Yeah. And I do think that there was a fair criticism that not the content, but the tone of CNN during the Zucker era was wrong or too much or too like journalists at the center of the story. Like I do think a good journalistic value is, it should be other people that you're like, like it's, it's obviously a bind, right? Because we were, we as journalists were being made the enemy of the people, right? Like Mm -hmm. obviously we have the instinct to like, you know, want to fight back, but there was a certain amount of grandstanding that did happen that I think was ultimately a turnoff to a lot of people. And it was sort of like short-term satisfaction and anger for long-term, like just like a series of like, people not trusting what we say, um, you know, seek to understand rather than to be understood for <laughs> St. Francis. There's some good stuff there, you know, <laughs> like it's, I think that's kind of like, um, there isn't like, yeah, there is an instinct to put opinion more like, again, obviously my piece took you down a certain path, but like, I think there's a shift back to like, yeah, well, you know, we should be, journalism should be a political party, right? And it should yeah. have political party values. And I think that's like, it's kind of, that's a kind of tricky space, right? It's like... It is a tricky space. Because I think if you're too sanctimonious, the real politique, right, is that like people get irritated by you. Obviously, I think that like people should have good information and they should like read newspapers and like 
you know, we should listen to people out in, in the middle of America. But also, like, you know, some of the kind of, like, J-school critiques of current journalism are, like, just disconnected from the reality of how you actually do that. And it's yeah. not by, like, being super heavy-handed and being, like, Trump is a criminal every time you talk about him. You know, there's, like, a way... It's it's tone. It's not It's not content. It's tone. And I think that's, like, what a lot of people are missing right now in journalism because everyone is so angry. It's about being um, skeptical during the day and earnest <laughs> in the evenings. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Claire, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly. Thanks so much to him. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox, with whom we make the show. And thank you so much to Claire Malone. We'll see you next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.